Let us hear God's word, Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> Amen. As we begin here today, um, I want us to begin by thinking about God's law. It's something that we have talked about Uh, Throughout this section, in some ways in chapter 1, Paul refers to it specifically in chapter 2. And as we think about the law of God, we uh, talk about using it in three different ways. And the first way is to show us our sin, to expose our sinfulness and show us that we need a Savior. The second way is to use the law to restrain evil in society. And then the third way is to use the law of God for the people of God. This is how God expects us to live. Now, with this uh, in mind now, of course, Paul is emphasizing the first use. He is using the law. Here are the quotations from these various passages, as well as what we saw in chapter 2 and chapter 1, uh, to show us our sinfulness and point us to Christ. And so with that in mind here, um, we began this section in verse 10 with Paul uh, basically uh, giving some scriptural support for the words that he has given to us since chapter 1 verse 18. In a way, Paul is repeating himself, and yet repetition is very common in the scriptures, and in particular, by giving these various Old Testament passages, he is adding authority to what he has been saying, and also appealing to the Jew especially, as well as to the Gentile. And he has told us that in all we say and do, we fall short of God's standards. It is not merely true for the unbeliever, but also for the Christian. And it's also not just before we become Christians, but even now as the people of God, we fall short of God's expectations. Paul began uh, by proving to us that everyone is unrighteous. We seek anything but the true God and the full truth. And so therefore, we do not understand. The corruption within then issues forth, as we saw last time, with the things that we say and the things that we do, evil words and wicked ways. And so once again, uh, the tendency for us when we hear these ideas is to compare ourselves with others. And it's just natural for us, right? We say, well, I'm not that bad. You know, that person over there is worse than I am. But Paul is wanting us to say, no, compare yourself to God, compare yourself to God's law. And when we do that, we have no hope in ourselves. We all fall short. And so Paul then concludes this chain of citations here in verse 18. And so let's read it here again. And simply it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. 
This is now the fifth time he says, there is not. Your translation will smooth it out in some ways. Remember, he saw it in verse 10 and 11 and 12. And now here, the fifth one, there is not. And so notice how he has spoken of our mouths, our throats, our tongues, our lips, our feet, our ways, and now our eyes. Paul's not being exhaustive for every body part, of course, but he is basically saying in every part of who we are, we fall short. Now he's emphasizing what we look at. And so let me pause and then uh, develop this uh, particular point here. Paul is teaching to us what we have called total depravity. Total depravity is the idea that there is not one part of us that has not been affected by sin. Or to put it positively, every part of us has been impacted by sin in one way or another. Our mind has been impacted by sin, right? He says we don't understand. This is contrary, for example, to the Catholic view that says that especially once we've been baptized, our mind still works well. We can reason our way to God. This is contrary to the Arminian view that says that our will has not been affected by sin, at least maybe just a little bit, but we still have the choice to choose Jesus or not. In the modern church, of course, we are basically told that our feelings are not affected by sin, that we should feel our way to God or something to that effect. But no, evil rules all parts of us, body and soul. Every part, nothing is not affected. Now, when we talk about this, we need to make sure that we're, we're clarifying. We're not talking about absolute depravity. That's the idea that we are so thoroughly sinful we can't get any worse than that. Now, that's a description of Satan. That's a description of those in hell, but that's not a description of us. We are not absolutely depraved, meaning we can't get any more sinful than we are, but we are totally depraved. Every part of us has been affected by sin. So there's still some good things, not good enough to earn our way to heaven, but there's still some good things in everyone. Even a, a Hitler had some good things in him, but maybe closer to absolute depravity than others. Okay? And so some are more corrupt than others, but all of us have been affected by sin. Okay? And so this then is what Paul is communicating in part by talking about these various body parts. And so not only should we understand this, but this then should impact how we think about the gospel and then how we share it. As we are witnessing, as we are defending the faith, okay, we should fully proclaim total depravity. The classical apologetic approach is really a Catholic approach to apologetics. It does not talk about total depravity of the mind. The evidentialist view of apologetics is not uphold total depravity. It basically says the will has not been affected, at least not as much as the Bible says. And so the reformed approach to apologetics is going to uphold total depravity and our witnessing in our defense of the faith. Let me read here a moment from John Stott, and he puts it like this. 
These bodily limbs and organs were created and given us so that through them we might serve people and glorify God. Instead, they are used to harm people and in rebellion against God. This is the biblical doctrine of total depravity, which I suspect is repudiated only by those who misunderstand it. It is never meant that human beings are as depraved as they could possibly be. Such a notion is manifestly absurd and untrue and is contradicted by our everyday observation. Not all human beings are drunkards, felons, adulterers, or murderers, and so on. As J.I. Packer has put it succinctly, on the one hand, no one is bad as he or she might be. Well, on the other hand, no action of ours is as good as it should be. And of course, that's what Paul is emphasizing here. There's nothing that we do that is good enough to warrant God's pleasure in really any way. And so, a few thoughts here in this regard. So let's look now more specifically at what Paul is saying in this verse. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, think about our eyes here for just a moment. Our eyes basically determine what we say and what we do. Okay? If I'm looking at Fred, okay, what comes out of my mouth is going to be something, okay, according to Fred in that relationship. If I look at Kathy, my eyes are looking differently. I'm, I'm going to say different things. Now, maybe not totally different, but you know where we're looking often determines the things that we say. So if we're not looking at God and we're looking at something else, right, filth is going to come out of our mouth, right? Same thing with our direction. If I try walking in this direction but look backward, right, I'm going to eventually run into something. So if we're not looking to God, we're going to crash and burn, so to speak. We're going to stub our toes and even worse. And so God is not before our eyes, Paul says. Instead of truth, instead of his standard, instead of his character, instead of his ways, okay, we're looking elsewhere. If we are looking to God, then that will lead us to repentance, to faith, to obedience. But Paul says we don't do that. We look elsewhere. We look at ourselves primarily. We look at our work. We look at our families. We look at entertainment. We look at the things that God has made here in this world instead of to God. That is what characterizes every one of us. And so instead of revering God, instead of loving him, instead of striving to honor and obey him, we love the things he has made instead. Again, especially ourselves. All right. The idea is pretty straightforward, but notice here how Paul is bringing things to a conclusion. I believe next week, when my intention is to finish the next two verses, that'll take us about six and a half months of sermons on this section, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18. And all along, Paul has been making his point. And now as he comes to verse 18, he's like, okay, this binds everything together. Let me show you. Here just immediately in verses 10 to 18, do you see how if not having the fear of God before our eyes means we're not seeking God. We're looking somewhere else. And instead of seeking for God, we're seeking for God's substitutes. 
Instead of our eyes on God, we therefore don't understand. And so you see how he takes us back to verses uh, 10 and 11 there. And so no one is righteous, he says. And so instead of seeking for God, we seek God's substitutes. Maybe actual idols like Baal or Buddha, or maybe idols of the heart. Maybe our baby or our bank account. But our idols of church activities, of religious effort, of benevolent behavior, and so forth. This is, again, what characterizes Because we are not having our eyes fixed on the Lord, we have these other idols. Let me read for us here briefly. This is Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we don't have the fear of God before our eyes, how are we going to have any understanding and wisdom? So you see how Paul is, if you will, bookending the idea of these quotations in this way. But verse 18 also takes us back to chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Because we do not fear God, we then suppress the truth. We replace God with idols, which results in God giving us over to sexual and social sins as judgment. The evil words and the evil ways of our lives are a result of a prior sin. And that prior sin is we're not fearing God. We're suppressing the truth. And so whether we're atheists or practical atheists, as Paul said in chapter 1, okay, ultimately this comes down to the issue of not fearing God, not having him before our eyes. Now in chapter 2, he talked about religious pride and virtuous superiority. This too is an indication that we are not fearing God. When we stand in front of the mirror and ask, who is the fairest one of all spiritually? We have ourselves before our eyes, don't we? This is what Paul is saying. We're not looking to God. We're looking to ourselves. When we gaze at our godly behavior, when we gaze at our doctrinal purity, we're looking at ourselves. We're not looking at God. None of these other things are going to get us to heaven. Only by looking to God. But again, Paul's point here is none of us do. We all look away from him. None of us fear God fully. No one is righteous, not as many as one. Well, let's now take a moment and look at this quotation. It's from Psalm 36. Of course, we read this here a little bit ago. And uh, the hymn based on especially second half of the psalm. All right. Well, Psalm 36, uh, obviously here, Psalm of David, and he wants all Israel to sing it. So he gave it to the chief musician. And notice that he begins by saying, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. And the first thing out of his mouth then is, there is no fear of God before his eyes. Paul obviously is quoting this, but note the one difference. David says, his eyes. Paul says, their eyes. And so David may have a particular individual in mind. Paul is expanding it to apply to us all. And so um, we're included in this. So then notice verse 2, where he says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates So, right, we're not looking to God. We're not fearing God. That's not what's in front of our eyes. Instead, 
We're flattering ourselves in our eyes. <coughs> Excuse me. We're looking at in the mirror at ourselves. And notice how David words this. When he finds out his iniquity, when he hates, he flatters himself. Right? And we do this all the time, don't we? When we find out our sin, what do we do? Well, I, I was just tired. I had a bad day. You know, I, I mean, it, those people just drive me nuts. I couldn't help myself. Right? We flatter ourselves. We lie to ourselves. We try to convince ourselves we're not as bad as we really are. We're not as bad as the person over there. So we flatter ourselves. We lie to ourselves when we sin and when we hate. Our culture is all about hate right now. But, you know, we don't like to think that we're haters. Uh, Maybe we don't like a certain person very much. But to hate them? Oh, no, we don't hate them, right? Well, David says, yes, we do. We do hate. Ultimately, if we're not loving, then we're hating. It's not indifference. It's not a lesser kind of love. The opposite of love, of course, here is hate. Um, and so we lie to ourselves to try to convince ourselves we're not so good. But we're, again, we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. We're not looking to God. So obviously you see how it fits with Paul's words. And then note at verse 3, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Okay. Paul could have quoted these verses for us, but he quoted some other ones there in verses 10 and following that say the same things. But do you see how the psalm ends? And maybe Paul ends with this one because he knows he's, he's almost ready to tell us the rest of the story. Hey, all along here for 62 verses now, he has been holding back and, and not said about God's grace. But you see how the psalm ends, verse 5, your mercy, O Lord. That's the Hebrew word chesed, his covenant love. Your faithfulness, that's the Hebrew word emeth, reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness, that's tzedek, I haven't used that Hebrew word as much over the years, but just vitally important terms here. Your judgments, that's mishpat. A great deep, right? All these key words here for the covenant, how God saves his people. We will talk about these ideas beginning in Romans 3, verse 21. Verse 7, how precious is your loving kindness. That's the word hesed again. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Okay, so um, Paul is going to greatly elaborate on the idea of faith and trust okay and i don't know if you noticed but stan mentioned about god being the rock and about being under his wings well here's a reference to the wings um also verse 10 continue your loving kindness again that's the word hesed and your righteousness there's that word again Um, this is our only hope okay verses one to four that describes all of us paul is saying Our only hope is not ourselves. Don't look at yourself in the mirror. Don't look at anything that you do because it never is enough. Our only hope is by looking to God. 
to his love, his mercy, his grace by way of covenant. But again, let's not get ahead of ourselves yet. <laughs> but this is, of course, where Paul's going to go. And so Paul then has begun this section, chapter 1, verse 18, and now he's ending this section, or even more immediately, chapter 3, verse 10 to verse 18, he is beginning and ending this chain of pearls, this citation here with this idea. The reason why we hate our neighbor is because ultimately we hate God. The reason why our lips drip poisonous things is because we're not looking to God. And so again, by way of summary, we suppress the truth, not because we are ignorant, but because we dislike God. We hate our neighbor, not because uh, we're just mean, but it's because we hate God. We are proud and we are boastful. We are holier than thou because we ignore the truth that God is our standard. We trust in our religious activities and misuse God's gifts because we think God is obligated to bless us. We drip poison from our lips and vomit filth from our hearts because we think we know better than God. I've just summarized chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 18. Let me put it another way. Not only do we sin consciously, but we sin unconsciously not only do our best deeds fail to be perfect according to a standard but we don't even come anywhere close remember our our scale of one to a hundred it's not like we're rating in the 30s or something we're not even getting to one not only do we turn from god and look elsewhere we fight against him striving to sit on his throne not only are we sinners but we're in bondage to sin unable to free ourselves and we like being slaves and so as as paul brings this pearl to his chain he very deliberately puts it here because he's wanting us to bring everything together because this ultimately is the point. Sin is not fearing God. Sin is, in its very essence, looking away from God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That's what we do every day. And so if we're not fearing God, then we're fighting against God. If we're not loving God then we're hating him. I know this is strong language, but this is how we need to think about it. Because if we don't, then we're going to look to ourselves in some way. And we can't. Again, this is true of everyone. Even true of the true believer, even after our conversion, this is still part of our old man. And so the essence of sin is to exalt oneself and to kick God off of his throne. And this is what Paul is saying that we do. All right, now, 
I would like for us to do one more thing here. Maybe I can put it like this. Let's add one more pearl to this chain. I've debated on how to do this since we started this section in chapter 1, verse 18. And that is, let's look at the law of God and focus specifically on the first use of the law. Okay, so let's turn to Exodus 20, hear that in a moment, and <clears throat> read down through these. Okay. In chapter 1, I made reference to these things, but we didn't actually turn here. In chapter 2, Paul made reference to the Jews receiving this and to the Gentiles having it written on their hearts. Well, let's now actually let the law do its due diligence, as it were. As we read this, let us see how we are not righteous. Remember that the law of God has both a positive and a negative meaning. And so if it tells us, you shall not, there is the opposite, you shall, for each one of these. And then lastly, let me just say this. We're just going to briefly touch on things. But if you have the larger catechism, okay, we have some of these yellow books in the office. Okay, you might remember we've used these at different times. If you don't have one at home, I encourage you to look at the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments because it greatly elaborates on these ideas. It's very helpful, though we may not want to read it very much. So let me say it. Uh, let, let's work our way through this here briefly. Verse, uh, verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now remember, this is at Mount Sinai, right? Thunder and lightning, God's, right? He's speaking also here, and he makes reference to the covenant here. So as I said, as we went through this, when I preached on this, remember the focus of Exodus 20 is on the third use of the law. This is how God wants us to live as his people. He's already saved Israel. This is never been intended as a way of salvation. But we can use the law in other ways. And so let's use it here to show us our sin and our need for Christ. As a tutor, as Paul says in Galatians. So verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. The problem is, of course, we do have other gods, don't we? We do put other things in front of God. Ourselves more than anything else. Our families, our work, our talents. Maybe the biggest God we worship is anything that makes us feel good about ourselves. And of course, we do not worship Yahweh alone. Our eyes are elsewhere. We seek other things. Not only do we seek other gods, but then we make images of them. So verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. This second commandment here is telling us not to make images of God. The problem is, we do. We have other gods, and then we make images of those gods. 
And sometimes we try to make images of the true God, which of course doesn't work either. Okay. At least these idols are in our minds, if not actually on our mantles at home. The gods that we worship often then are manifested by the amount of money we spend on something and the amount of time we spend doing it. So whether it's sports or music or work or family, avoiding pain, how we look, you name it. We make idols of the things that we worship most. And then we do not worship God without images. Hey, how many times when we come here to worship on Sundays, hey, maybe when we're praying and singing and so forth, do you have an image of God in your mind? Hey, God has never, he's told us not to use images. And in regard to Christ, who is the image of God, he has never told us how he looked. There's no description of the, the uh, appearance of Christ. And yet, of course, there are many churches, many Christians that have images of Christ. But that image is always going to be a limitation of who he is. The only unlimited image of Christ is Christ himself. Someday in heaven, we'll see him and we will see the fullness of his image. And that is not a limitation of the second person of the Trinity, but anyone that we make is. And so let's not use these images but are you using it in your, your mind? Well, let's keep going. The third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, sometimes we take his name in vain by cursing, especially if we work around people who say it all the time. Sometimes it slips out. You know, it's more important for us to keep in mind this meaning. If we use God's name carelessly, that is taking his name in vain. Sometimes you hear it with people praying. They use God as a punctuation mark. Instead of thinking carefully about the names of God that is used, you hear God or Lord every other word, it seems. But don't use God's word carelessly. To put it this way, we all say we're Christians, right? But when we live like the world, we have now taken God's name in vain. When we say that we're a Christian, but we live as if we're not, we have just vainly taken God's name upon ourselves. Again, we all have fallen short in this way. So verse 8, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay. Of course, the problem is, is we don't remember the Sabbath day the way God intends. We are not to work on Sundays. That's the first idea. We are to rest from our labors. We are to worship God. Okay. That's the first thing. The problem, again, is, is we don't do this perfectly. We don't prepare enough earlier in the week 
to set aside this day and we tend to think about other things or do other things on the Lord's day rather than resting from our labors and worshiping God. As we read last week in Exodus chapter 29, there's a description of the morning and the evening sacrifice. This pattern that God gave to Israel is a pattern that the church has followed throughout history. And that is morning and evening prayers for the individual or for the family or even, you know, at the temple or something is following this pattern morning and evening on a daily basis. And then when it comes to the Lord's Day, we've again among conservative Protestants, we've done the same thing. We've had morning and evening prayer uh, uh, services. Now, yes, before the automobile, uh, maybe you'd have a worship at nine, and then you'd have lunch, and then you'd have your evening service at two or three o'clock, so that you didn't, you know, walk back and forth so much, or your horse and buggy, but still, it was the idea of the morning and the evening in our worship. This is what God has called us to do, and yet, we don't do it, even if we sit here If we are not worshiping as God intends us to worship, if our mind wanders, if we fall asleep, if we, you know, whatever, we are breaking this commandment. But notice also then the other aspect of this command is not only that we are to rest and that we are to worship our God, but we are not to have other people work. If you cause someone else to work on the Sabbath day, then you're breaking this command. So if we go out to eat after church or something like that. Now, my nephew is in the hospital right now getting surgery. That's a work of necessity. But, you know, 90-some percent of the time, that's not necessary. God doesn't want us to work. He doesn't want us to have others work either. All right, well, I could obviously say so much about each one of these, but note the point. We are all falling short. No one is righteous. We deserve judgment. All right, fifth commandment, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The problem is we do not honor or respect those in authority over us, whether it's our parents our elders at church, our bosses at work, our magistrates in the civil realm, what we do, of course, is rebel, argue, disobey, at least in our minds, if not in our behaviors. What we frequently say in our house is, hey, whatever, Matthew, Emma, you know, whatever, go do this. Oh, dad, that's arguing. Even if they go do it, if they're crumbling the whole way, they're still arguing. We all do this, don't we? Sixth commandment, verse 13, you shall not murder. The text does not say you shall not kill. It says you shall not murder. It's specifically that word. Um, And remember Jesus' teaching, of course, in Matthew 5, that if we use our words to harm someone, then we have murdered them. It's not just our actions, but also our words, and certainly, of course, our thoughts. Paul has just talked about our, our lips dripping poison, the filth coming out from uh, within us, out our mouths. These kinds of things are murderous. 
We talked last week also about our feet are quick to shed blood. And it isn't just literal shedding of blood. Oppressing the poor, not helping those in need, that's also a form of shedding blood and therefore a breaking of the sixth commandment. It's not just the abortion doctor, but if we are not doing things to preserve life, if we are not standing up, in this case, for the unborn, but if we're also not trying to defend those who are being oppressed, like at the border of our country or in the inner city or whatever it is, if we're we're not helping people, even at school or at work, because someone is being picked on, we're not preserving life. We are contributing to murderous behavior in this way. And of course we have. So verse uh, 14, you shall not commit adultery. We've all done it with our eyes, have we not? We have all done this in our thoughts. It is so easy to access pornography today. 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, it was much harder to do, but now it's almost everywhere. Um, We do not remain faithful to our spouse, at least again in our minds. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Problem is we do. We steal things, we steal time, we steal someone's name and integrity through the words that we say about them. Note that the assumption of the Eighth Commandment is how can you steal from someone if they don't own it? The assumption here is private property. God has given it to a particular person. Don't take it. They own it because God gave it to them. And so if you go out and you vote for a progressive socialist politician who will take from one person and give to somebody else, you are advocating for stealing. There are many other ways we can apply this, obviously. Ninth commandment, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Of course, we do lie. We do deceive. Maybe on the witness stand, but surely on a daily basis. Through tall tales, twisting and spinning the truth to make ourselves look better. Avoiding certain things, avoiding truth. Not upholding truth and honesty. Following fake news. There's all kinds of ways that we fail to uphold this command. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Of course, we do covet. We desire things that God has not given to us. Maybe it's the toy that our friend got for Christmas. Maybe it's fame or money. The opposite idea here is that we're to be content with whatever God has given to us. Are you content with what God has given to you? I know I'm not. We always want more. We want something different. We're to be content with whatever God gives to me, but we fall short in this, do we not? And we deserve judgment. Okay. Well, <clears throat> remember that we can summarize the law of God by loving God and loving our neighbor. 
We do not love God with all parts of our being. We are lukewarm at best. We do not love our neighbor. Instead, we demand that they do for me and are unwilling to do the same for them. And all that we do and all that we don't do, <clears throat> Paul is telling us, we have fallen short. And I know this is a repeated idea that's been going on for weeks, but have you actually heard it yet? Not just in your head, not just understanding the idea, but does it actually absorb the whole of your person? You remember the old Frank Sinatra song, My Way? Isn't that what describes us? Isn't this why the song was so popular? Hey, I want to live my life my way. We don't want to have the fear of God before our eyes. No, I want to do it my way. Remember the old Rolling Stones song, I'm free to do what I want. And many other examples. You know, the theme verse of the Satanic Bible, the creed of the Satanic Bible is do what thou wilt. And that's what describes us. There are no exceptions. But again, you've probably done this, okay, even here in the last few moments. You've probably said, well, I'm not as bad as that person. But Paul does not want us to think that way. These words of Paul, these words of God, ultimately are designed to shut our mouths because we have no defense. And so let us leave without hope in ourselves, but recognize there is more to this story than what Paul has been saying here. And so, Lord willing, next time we'll bring this thought to a close in verses 19 and 20. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, again, we thank you for your word, and we are thankful that you um, have, as it were, belabored this point. Because we really do not want to believe this. Lord, we pray for your mercies. We pray for your chesed, your covenant love, that you would help us to see this, and not just in some vague general way, but specifically as the confession says, that we would repent of our specific sins specifically. Lord, help us to move beyond, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, to I have sinned in these specific ways, and my only hope is you alone through Christ. Lord, we pray that you would bring each of us to this point, and that you would um, prevent us from uh, passing the blame and comparing ourselves with others but to look to you truly. Lord, we pray that this would not merely be something we do once or every now and again, but that you would strengthen us to do this regularly, day by day, even as your people, that we would constantly turn away from any hope in ourselves, any pride in ourselves, any boasting, that we would look to you alone in our not only our justification, but our sanctification. And so, Lord, we... Um, again, are thankful that uh, you have spoken these truths to us. 
Help us to hear them. And thus, look to you truly. We pray all of this then in Jesus' name. Amen.